start. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Thanks for being here. We were going to review today, and this is the review day for most of the classes, but I had told you before that I wanted to look more fully at a question we didn't get to address. Could there have been death before the fall? And as I was putting together this lesson, I found that I wanted to say a lot about that question, so it became the full subject of today's class. So we actually won't be spending time reviewing, but that's okay, because you could either review or go, go more in depth into something. That's what the curriculum calls for, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go more in depth into this question, looking in depth at could there have been death before the fall? And those who believe in an old earth almost always believe in death, or at least animal death, before the fall. After all, how are you going to explain all the fossils in the various rock layers? The rock layers are thought to be from a time before man, many millions of years ago, billions of years ago. Therefore, the dead animals in those rock layers also have to be before man. And if they're dead, and if they're in the rock layers, then death had to also be before man. But is this what the Bible says? Or is the Bible ambiguous on this issue? Can you not really tell if death was there before the fall? Can you fit millions of years of death, disease, and struggle into Genesis 1? Well, let's take a closer look. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, first, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give me the ability to explain well, help us to understand your word, God, and help us to boldly, confidently, confidently declare your truth that is of the highest authority that assesses all other truth claims, that shows reality, God. I pray that you would show us reality as we read it and as we understand it. Spirit, please work. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start looking at this question by watching a short video from Answers in Genesis. This is going to be Ken Ham addressing the question, was there death before Adam sinned? So if we could bring that up to the projector, please. He argues that the fossil record shows, whenever you bring that fossil record in light of the scripture, it shows that there couldn't have been death before Adam sinned. How is that? If you read Genesis and then you look at the fossil record, Ken Ham argues, then you know that death could not have happened before sin. Because what's there in the fossil record that shows that? Well, there are dead things. What'd you say? Yeah, brain tumors and disease. Why is that significant? Right, so that's one part of the argument. If there are diseases, cancer, and various afflictions on animals evident in the fossil record, how does that fit with a very good creation? That couldn't have been from a pre-fall world. It had to be something that happened after Adam's sin. What's something else that shows up in the fossil record that doesn't fit? Thorns, right? And thorns are specifically said to be a result of the curse. God tells Adam, as part of the curse on the ground, it will now produce thorns. Why would those be in a pre-fall world? It can't really be a pre-fall world. What we see in the fossil record must be post-fall. And then there's one other thing. What else do we see in the fossil record? Right, examples of predation, carnivorous behavior, bite marks on bones, animals fossilized in other animals' stomachs. That couldn't have been from a pre-fall world because that type of behavior uh, would mean that the animals were not vegetarian. But Genesis 1 says, or God tells Adam and, or he tells Adam that the animals are going to eat plants. They were not eating other animals, so that can't be from a pre-fall world. So really, and he also mentions a couple other verses in there that we'll talk about later, Romans 8 being one of them, but the main argument here from Ken Ham is that the fossil record, when you look at it in light of Genesis, or the first couple chapters of Genesis, they show that death had to have come after the fall because things that are in the fossil record were not part of the original creation. Thorns were not part of it. Carnivorous behavior was not part of it. And disease and cancer don't seem like they would be part of it because God says he made his creation very good. 
at the end of day six. So this is a, a powerful argument, very useful argument. But the pro-secularist pro -secularist Bible blender will have objections. He will say, hold on a moment. I think you've overlooked some things in the Bible. I put up a, a list of objections here. This actually comes from an article that I saw online, a website called godandscience.org, which argues for an old earth, progressive creation perspective. And these are the objections that he lists for why there had to be death before the fall. Number one, God never actually prohibited animals from eating each other. He does say he gave them plants to eat, but that statement is not necessarily exclusive. All food is actually based on plants. So even carnivorous animals would ultimately be eating plants through their plant-eating prey. God didn't actually say they couldn't eat other animals. Number two, since plants are food, then to eat plants, you have to kill them, which means death existed before the fall. Man and animals were already killing and eating plants before Adam sinned, so of course death was always there. Third objection, Adam named the land animals. And these names, passed down to the Hebrews of Moses' day, include names based off of carnivorous traits. For instance, the name for the hawk in Hebrew comes from the word of th for throwing or diving, which describes how a hawk swoops down on its prey. If Adam observed carnivorous behavior, and it, came, and it comes through in his names, then death had to exist before the fall. Otherwise, why would he name them thus? Number four, if God's prohibition to Adam and the consequences, uh, if God's prohibition to Adam about the tree of knowledge included a consequence of death, for that to make any sense to Adam, Adam had to know what death was. How would he know what death was unless he had actually seen it? Death had to have existed around him. Otherwise, God's command doesn't make any sense. Death had to exist before Adam's sin. Number five, if death came to animals as a result of Adam's sin, then that makes God unjust because the animals didn't actually do anything. God always punishes those who actually deserve it. That's what makes him a just God. And the animals don't deserve any punishment. Therefore, animal death could not have been a punishment from the fall. It had to have always existed. Number six, God finished creation on day six. It says he finished his work, it was completed, he rested from creation. But a curse on animals after Adam's sin would require God to create again or to alter his creation. Since God could not start creating all over again, he must have created the animals with carnivorous traits and things that we associate with the fall from the beginning. So if, if predation was there from the beginning, then death was always present with the animals as well. And then finally, death, disease, and suffering aren't actually bad for animals. Though we may feel sympathy or pity for suffering animals, they aren't made in the image of God. They don't have self-awareness. They're just animated dust. Animals were actually made for man, which is why God has no problem killing animals on man's behalf. He does so in Genesis 3. And why we have no problem killing animals today. Therefore, it's not inconsistent for God to call his creation very good at the end of day six. Even though it includes animal death and suffering, it's not actually bad. Because animals are just dust. For them, death and suffering aren't actually bad. So these are real arguments. Again, this comes from a, a real article. This is the, the owner of the website, Richard Deem, who's a biologist who spent a number of years working for Hugh Ross's organization, Reasons to Believe. You may remember Hugh Ross. We mentioned his name before. Influential progressive creationist, someone who opposes the word of God. So is there anything to these objections? Do we have reason to hesitate when saying, that death took place as a result of the fall, or death took place after the fall. Let's examine each of these in turn. First, was the plant diet not exclusive? Was that the only thing that animals and humans ate? Well, to say that it's not exclusive, that animals could have eaten or did eat other things, is an argument from silence. 
And arguments from silence are always strong or weak. Which one? They're weak because silence can be interpreted so many different ways. Just because God did not specifically prohibit animals from eating each other, that he didn't explicitly say that in the text, that does not mean that God allowed it or that he may have allowed it. Let's go back and actually look at the relevant passage. Look at Genesis 1, 29 to 30. Genesis 1, verses 29 to 30. So this is in day six, right after God has, uh, right after God has created man, and, there, and he's finished creating the animals. Verse 29, and then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Okay, notice in this passage, to whom is God speaking? He's speaking to man, right? He's just created man, and he's telling man what man's going to eat. Now, God tells man what his source of food is, and it is what? Plants, right. And he mentions things that, uh, plants that yield seed, and trees that yield seed, fruit-bearing trees. Did man have other sources of food besides plants? No, he did not, though perhaps you could argue he could have eaten certain dairy products or things like honey. He certainly was not eating animal meat. And do we know this for sure? We do. And it's actually, we, there's another spot in the scriptures we can go to to prove this. How do we know that he was not eating animal meat? Yeah, Khalif. Exactly. Exactly. After the flood, God speaks to Noah and says, I give you animals as food. He specifically says, I'm now letting you eat animals. Why would God say that if, if man were eating animals before? Of course he wasn't. So God was now allowing anim or animals to be part of man's diet. So it was not part of man's diet before. But notice that in our passage here in Genesis 1, God isn't just talking about man's source of food. What else will have plants for food? That's right, we're animals, specifically land and sky animals here. Now notice man's food and animal's food is discussed together. Both are said to have food of the same kind. Therefore, it is safe and reasonable for us to conclude that animals had a food source that was just like man. Man ate only plants. Animals ate only plants. Right, that phrase, everything that moves on the earth, is also um, very inclusive. And it's sometimes translated creep. So yeah, that could be talking about insects, or may maybe even more. I think this, even though it identifies land and sky animals, we're really actually talking about all animals. Because the Bible blender will come back and say, well, why aren't the sea animals mentioned? Many sea animals are carnivorous. You can't say that these verses prove that all animals are vegetarian. Well, again. This is another argument from silence. The blender wants to use the lack of a, um, no, I'm say it this way. I don't know why sea animals aren't mentioned. My guess is because God is emphasizing land plants and sea animals don't usually come on land to eat land plants. The safer inference here is not that, okay, sea creatures are not mentioned so they must have eaten something different. The safer inference is that sea creatures had food similar to that which land and air creatures did. They ate plants or things that were based off of plants, or, or things that were plant-like. They did not have an altogether different diet. And the blender may come back again and say, well, God specifically told man when he could eat meat, but he never did that for the animals, so that means that the animals were always eating meat. Well, again, 
This is an argument from silence. A lack of a pronouncement for animals to eat meat does not necessarily mean that animals were always eating meat. It could just as easily be argued that the reason God never told animals that they could eat meat is because he didn't have to. They had already begun to do so as a result of the fall. So this first objection that animals could have eaten other things even though God says that they eat plants is an argument based from silence and in context because man eats only plants and animals' food is discussed in the same way as man's food, animals must have eaten only plants too. So we can dismiss that first objection. By the way, the idea of animals eating other animals as part of the original creation, or rather, animals only eating plants, is totally consistent with descriptions that God gives about animals in the future. God's millennial kingdom in Isaiah 11, where the lion is said to eat straw like an ox, and the bear is said to graze like a cow. We'll come look at that passage um, more specifically later. Certainly, they did not have a, a more inclusive diet. In the future, it's just going to be plants. So that is very consistent with what we've just been looking at. So that's the first objection. Well, what about the second one? The idea that, well, if plants are dying, then obviously you have death before the fall. Well, the answer here is actually really interesting. Because according to the Bible, plants do not live or die in the same ways that animals or people do. If you still have your Bibles open to Genesis 1, you may have noticed something poignant from the passage. When identifying the animals, God says that these animals specifically have what in them? breath, or life, depending on your translation. And the Hebrew word is nephesh, and it means breath, life, self, or soul. It's the same word used in Genesis 2-7, which says when God created man, the man became a living soul. He became a living nephesh. So animals, in Genesis 1, are said to have nephesh. Humans have nephesh, but plants? No nephesh. They aren't alive like humans and animals are. This might seem weird for us because we're so used to hearing about plants being alive, plant cells, animal cells all being alive in the same way. And they are, plant cells and plants are alive in a certain sense. But the Bible makes a distinction. There's a difference between the way a plant is alive and the way that animals and humans are alive. And this distinction is actually consistent throughout the Bible. Plants are almost never said to die in the Bible. They are instead described as withering or fading. But the, or Roy, I see your hand. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's a good observation, Roy, mentioning that one other difference between plants and animals and humans that plants don't have blood. And just as you mentioned, Roy, the scriptures are very adamant about the life is in the blood. There certainly would be no blood in the plant. But the, the pro-secularist pro blender will come back again. Oh, he says, you say that plants are different from animals and humans, that plants are not alive? Well, then why does the Bible sometimes compare human life to a plant life? Okay, that's true. The Bible does make some some comparisons like this. For instance, you may have heard this one from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. A voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, so we've heard that passage before. And what's very evident about the passage is that there's a kind of figurative language in it. To say that all people are grass is what kind of figurative language? What's it? It is, it is a certain um, kind of poetic imagery. Yeah, Emma? It's a metaphor. When you say that one thing is something else. A metaphor is, a simpl is simply a figurative comparison of two unlike objects 
in a way that draws out a likeness, that draws out a similarity. Something to be a metaphor, you have to have two unlike objects that are similar in one way. That similarity is highlighted for the reader. And what is the similarity between men and grass highlighted in those set of verses? It says all men are grass. Yes. Exactly. Brevity, right? Transience. The idea is that they fade away quickly. They're both very temporary. That's it. That's the common characteristic. We don't need to make men completely like grass to understand the metaphor, and that's certainly not the way the original author meant. Men do not live and die in the same way as grass, nor does grass have a soul like uh, soul or life essence the same way as man does. To say that they have to be the same in their quality of life is to go beyond the, the way the metaphor is meant. In fact, sometimes when the Bible speaks of man's life in comparison to plant's life, it actually draws attention to how different their types of life are. Let's actually uh, have you turn to John 12, because this is a great example. John 12, verses 23 to 25. Those who want to say that plants actually die and have life just like man do, they want to go to this passage. But as we look at it, we're going to find that using this as a support for plants dying just like people do is actually very ironic. All right, this is John 12. Verses 23 to 35. Starting in 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. To life eternal. Okay, the blender comes and looks at this verse and he says, aha, see, it says that grain dies. And Jesus even compared himself to dying grain. Obviously, plants die and live and die just like people do. But if we look closely at this text, how did the verses actually prove the opposite? Say that again, Bill. Right. There's something very different about grain when it dies. He says this, this dying seed, when it goes into the earth, it actually produces a new life. And not just new life, multiplied life. The whole point of this comparison from Jesus, of himself to a grain of wheat, is to show that he and those who believe in him will actually never die. He and they will be just like grain, which goes into the ground like a dead seed and then comes up out of the ground into a new life, bearing fruit and multiplying life. This is not the normal living and dying that humans experience. Therefore, Jesus is completely appropriate to use plant life as a way to explain that. He says, this is not normal living and dying, so I'm going to go to something that doesn't no have a normal life and death experience, plants. And I'll use that to explain this to you. So, again, the idea that plants die just like people do is just not in the Bible. Even this passage, which seems to say it actually says the opposite. Plants are not proof that death existed before the fall because plants do not live and die like humans or animals do. All right, now let's look at the third objection. What about those names? Adam named animals. The Hebrews were using names that were carnivorous. Death had to be before the fall. Well, perhaps you see that the objection to this, or this objection is a pretty simple answer. What's our response to those who say that carnivorous names were passed down from Adam. Yeah, Khalid. Exactly, exactly. Thanks, Khalid. There is no reason for us to say that the Names the Hebrews were using for the animals 
are the same name that Adam gave to the animal. Talif mentioned the Tower of Babel. That's pretty significant. But also, there's the question of time. How much time had gone by between Adam's naming of the animals and Moses' writing of the first five books? About 2,500 years. That's a long time. Are we using the same names for animals that people were using 2,500 years ago? Our language didn't even exist 2,500 years ago. Or the Tower of Babel would have taken place about 750 years before this. That would have a huge effect on the languages and on the names that people were using for animals. There's no reason for us to make a connection between the Hebrew words for animals and Adam's original name. Even if Adam were speaking Hebrew, the names he came up with the animals would probably not be used by later generations. What were you going to say, Bob? Yeah, that's totally true as well. It's a good observation, Rob. Even if the same words are used, sometimes they, have, they take on different meanings over time. And certainly that's observable in English. Certain words we don't use anymore because of the negative connotations that they've taken over time. And certain words that were really negative in the past, we now use because they've lost those negative connotations. So we can dismiss this objection as well. Carnivorous names in the Hebrew do not prove predation or death before the fall. What about Adam's knowledge of death? How was he going to know what death was unless death was already around him? We've answered this objection actually in a previous class. It was not necessary for man to see or experience death in order for him to understand the concept. There were many things that man understood from the beginning. He knew language very well. He not just knew basically how to converse with God, but when Eve appears, he gives her a name that has to do with language. When he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Also, in that exchange, he demonstrates knowledge of basic anatomy, bone, flesh. He knew what his own kind was. He knew how to name and classify creatures, not just Eve, but all the animals. Where'd you get that knowledge, Adam? He knew basic gardening, or he must have, because God puts him in the garden to tend and keep it. Where did man get all this knowledge? He was alive for less than 24 hours, and yet he immediately had to put that knowledge to use. The only answer is that God gave it to him. God somehow gave him those sets of knowledge. And if God could do that, could God not also adequately communicate to Adam what death was? Of course he could. God did not need animal death in the world for Adam to understand the concept of death. So we dismiss this as well. We reject this. Adam did not need to see death around him to know what death was. All right, well, what about the idea of unjust punishment? I mean, think about the animals. What did they do to deserve all this disease and suffering if it really came about as a result of the curse? Well, this objection, too, is relatively straightforward to answer. Why would it not be unjust for God to subject animals to the curse due to Adam's sin? Exactly. That's a great answer, Steve. There's really a parallel here be between original sin and the curse on the animals. Adam was the representative. And in the animal case, he was the ruler of the animals. He was the one given dominion over the whole earth. Therefore, when Adam was cursed, his whole dominion was cursed. The creation with which Adam interacted and in which he was to exercise dominion was also cursed along with him, the ruler and representative over that creation. You remember the verse in Genesis 1.26, when God actually gives man dominion. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So therefore, when Adam sinned and was cursed, his dominion was cursed. The animals were cursed. The earth was cursed. 
Romans 5.12 is also relevant to this question, but when you bring this up to blenders, they like to say that that passage only has to do with human death. They acknowledge that human death, many of them acknowledge that human death came as a result of the fall, but other types of death and suffering were already present. However, Romans 5, though it does have humans chiefly in mind, it shows us that the curse of death went beyond humans. Actually, turn to Romans, since we're not too far from it. Romans 5, verse 12. We're going to focus on the first part of the verse because there's something very poignant there. Romans 5, verse 12. It says this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. That first part is very instructive, very didactic. Sin entered the world, not just man or man's experience. Sin entered the world through Adam's transgression, and in the same way, death entered the world. The, world, the word for world, world there is the Greek word cosmos. The cosmos, the world, had not known sin previously. It only entered in when Adam fell. And in the same way, it did not know death previously in any form. But when Adam sinned, the world knew death. Death entered the world. So even though this passage is mainly talking about man, this part right here shows us that the whole world was affected by Adam's sin, because death entered the world. The animals were subjected to death. But unwillingly, unwillingly, but with God's ultimate glory in mind. And this is something Paul's going to further explain just a few chapters later. Turn to Romans 8. This is another very important passage for dealing with those who say there was death before the fall. Romans 8, look at verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Maybe when you just heard that verse, you say to yourself, how much clearer can it get, right? The creation was subjected to futility. So it's just talking about the fall, right? These are the curses that came on creation, the whole creation after Adam's sin. But let's even look at this a little bit more in more detail. It says the creation was subjected to futility. That is vanity or transientness. And then it was enslaved to corruption, causing it to metaphorically groan and suffer the intense pain of childbirth. Why? For the sake of the glorious gospel, which would be revealed when the creation was set free from corruption and brought into the glory of God. And just as creation groans, verse 23 tells us, so we ourselves groan and yearn for the redemption of ourselves, that we too might be set free from corruption and brought into God's glory. Notice there's a connection there. God, or Paul, God through Paul, is making a connection between what creation is experiencing and what it yearns for and what we experience, what, what we yearn for. Notice the word subjected. This is a very key word. In verse 20, what does subjected mean? If you're subjected to something. Yeah, Greg. Very good. That's a great definition, Craig. Under the power of or under the influence of. It is the sense of the Greek word 
Hupo Tasso, the reason I use those Greek words is because maybe you've heard them before and you say, ah, Hupo, yeah, I remember that. It's the idea of being under. It has to do with obedience, being put under another's authority. But to be subjected to something or to be put under something's authority, you must necessarily have one time not have been subjected to that power, right? There must have been a time when you were not under that authority. I cannot be subjected to a neighbor's loud music unless I had at a previous time not been under its authority or influence or else I could not say that I've been subjected to it. The word subjected, then, is very instructive about creation. Creation cannot be said to have always been subjected to vanity and corruption, because if it were, it would not have known anything different. It could not said to be subjected. It would naturally have been in that state. That would be its free state. But rather, creation groans and yearns for freedom. It knows that there's something different that it had experienced, that it wants to get to. This whole exhortation here in Romans 8 is based on creation being similar to ourselves. Creation knew a time when it was not under the harsh boot of corruption, and so did mankind in Adam. But both were put in subjection to vanity and corruption. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glorious gospel. Creation longs to be set free from the corruption, to be renewed, made perfect. And then think about it, what a beautiful and fantastic creation it would become. The new heavens, the new earth, who can imagine how grand and beautiful it is? In the same way, Paul said, we should not underestimate the glory that awaits us in our own redemption. We should not lose heart, even while we groan in this transient world because of the astounding glory that we will know when we are revealed to be sons of God. This whole thing is based on the analogy. Creation is going into a glorious freedom. So are you. Therefore, don't lose heart at the sufferings that you have in this world. They're not worthy to be compared with what's to come. So no, it is not unjust for God to curse creation because of man's sin. It was appropriate considering man's dominion over creation, and it was purposeful in light of God's future redemption in the gospel that would release both man and creation from the effects of sin. Side note, on this idea of is it just to judge creation or animals because of man's sin, there are other times in the Bible where animals are judged alongside man for mankind's sin. Can anybody think of other times? Well, certainly animals are used as part of sacrifices. That's worthy of mention. What were you going to say, Judy? So you're probably talking about the, the horses in Pharaoh's army as they're engulfed by the Red Sea. Certainly, yeah, there's another example of animals suffering for man's sin. Or how about the flood? Right? All the animals, all the land animals were destroyed, except for those in Noah's Ark. Or you may remember when Jonah preaches to Nineveh. He's very angry that God would not destroy the city, but God mentions, just think of all the animals that were in there. They would have died too, not to mention a whole bunch of people and children. So certainly this concept of uh, animals being part of man's dominion and suffering with man is all over the Bible. Yeah, Roy. There's always a connection between what animals experience and what man is experiencing, especially when it comes to, uh, as you mentioned, Roy, from that passage, the knowledge of the Lord. We're actually going to come back to that passage in Isaiah 11 a little bit later on in the class. We'll say more about it. But yeah, it's a great place to go. Yeah, Bill. Right, certainly that's another, that's another aspect to bring up, just to repeat what your thought, Bill. If creation were always like this, always subjected to death, corruption, disease, and those types of things, and that was considered good by God, 
And then what about the future? What do we have to look forward to? If creation is going to be set free from its bondage, and that bondage does not include death and disease and suffering, if that were always there, then what would it be set free to? And if we're going to be part of that creation, then what do we have to look forward to? Yeah, it's a, it's a very worthy question. I think we'll address that a little bit later on also. So let's come to the sixth objection, the idea that God finished his creation, and therefore he couldn't alter the creation anymore. Well, the idea of the finished creation precluding any big changes to the creation is based off of Genesis 2, verses 1 to 2. I'll read those verses for you. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now by themselves, those verses might make us think that God is no longer going to create anything. He's no longer going to create anything else out of nothing, and he's not going to make any big alterations to his creation. The problem is that we see God doing just that many times in the rest of the Bible. Did anyone mention a time where God, later on in the Bible, creates something out of nothing? Yeah, in the Gospels, what specifically? Exactly, the loaves and fishes. That was the act of creation, the creation out of nothing. I thought God was done with that. Apparently not. What else? What else an example of God drastically altering or creating out of nothing? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Jesus changing water into wine. That was a water into wine. That was a drastic alteration of creation. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, many of the healing miracles, that's pretty altering of creation. That's, it, it causes a, a, a person who has a withered hand for it to be fully healthy, to be fully created anew. Or how about the plagues on Egypt? Where did all those gnats come from and the frogs? And even there you have water turning into something else, water turning into blood. Or the wilderness wandering. God miraculously causes manna to appear all over the ground, and he causes huge flocks of quail to appear. You say, well, no, he was just orchestrating all these quail to get together from around the world. No, I don't think so. All those quail to get there or to be there at that time required creation. And then, of course, there's the thorns mentioned specifically in Genesis 3. God says, now they're going to produce thorns. That's an alteration of creation. So God though he completed his creation work, did not cease being able to or doing miraculous creations or alterations to the universe. He did rest from and complete his creative works, but that didn't mean he would no longer miraculously act in the world. So in what sense did God rest or complete his works? I'm not exactly sure. Perhaps it was simply in the sense of everything in the universe being filled. If you remember, when God created the earth and space on day one, he remarks that they were formless and empty. But by day seven, the universe was very much formed and filled. Not completely filled, because he says, tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply, but it was formed and filled. In that sense, the creation project was complete. It was finished. Whatever the explanation, God certainly was not prevented from creatively altering the universe because of Adam's sin. He did just that. So we can reject this objection as well, that death had to be there because God couldn't create anymore. Well, the things that you're saying that God couldn't do, he was certainly doing in the rest of the Bible. This is a good time to mention another related question, though, having to do with creation and alteration. Why were some animals created seemingly with carnivorous behavior in mind, such as the T-Rex with its giant teeth, the viper with its venom, or the armadillo with its armor? Wouldn't such features be unnecessary in a deathless world? Why would God create them that way? 
a good question. And we can't say for sure what the answer is, but creationists have given a number of plausible explanations for these defense attack structures. One is that they were repurposed. Originally, such features had a, had a good purpose, a non-carnivorous purpose, but the environment changed, and the purposes for these features changed as well. So they were just repurposed, these features. Another is that they were added. They were armed. These animals were armed after the fall. God added, God miraculously added new features to creatures at the curse so that they would be able to withstand the onslaught of violence provoked by sin. God certainly could have done that. Hang on to that, Roy. Third is that God foresaw the changes and he designed animals with things that they didn't need at first. Although unnecessary in a perfect world, God designed creatures with the features they would need to live in a fallen world that God knew was coming. It's possible. Or finally, God simply activated features in their genetic code that were not prominent originally. God designed features in the genes of the original creatures that, would not, that did not become active until after the curse. So the armadillo was not armored in the beginning, but it had it in its genes, and then after the curse, God activated those genes. Really, God could have done it in any of those ways. He could have repurposed their features. He could have given them new features miraculously. He could have caused them to have features that they weren't using in the beginning. But certainly, God was not limited. We, would, we need not say, well, because, they had these, because we see these attack defense structures today, they must have always had these things because of death. No, it's, it's not necessarily that. Let me keep going just for the sake of time. Our last objection is maybe the most slippery. And that is, animal death is not really that bad. It's not bad at all. Because animals really are not, they're not human. Good is such a relative term. Good can be interpreted in many different ways. What did God mean when he concluded that, behold, the creation was very good? Did he mean that it was good intrinsically? Or did he mean that it was good ultimately? Did God mean this pleases me in every respect? Or did God mean this displeases me in some lesser respects, but pleases me in the most important respects? I'm not pleased with every aspect of this creation, but it's all working together for a greater purpose. What did God mean? Those pro-secularist blenders will want to say that God is talking about his ultimate purposes when he says it's very good. That even if it means countless animals and soulless hominids will struggle and suffer, it's good for God's plan. They dismiss young earth creationist arguments to the contrary by saying, or when young earth creationists say, would a good God do this? Would a good God include all this suffering? They say, well, you're just appealing to emotion. God has the greater picture in mind. I mean, think of the things God does today. He sends plagues, or in the Bible he sends plagues. Today he allows disasters. You may say, hey, is that good from God? It's good for his ultimate purposes. So what did God mean when he said very good? I think there are a number of ways you can approach this question. We certainly already discussed a number of reasons why God must have meant good intrinsically. There are other reasons, as we've just mentioned, going through this list, why death could not have existed before the fall. Therefore, the good that God meant must have been good in every aspect, pleasing in every aspect. But I'm going to offer you one more reason, specifically to this question, why God must have meant good intrinsically. And that is this. It's impossible to say that animals can be subject to death, disease, predation, and futility, and yet say that man is not, at least in some sense, also subject to those things. I'll say that again. It's impossible to say that animals can be subject to death and futility and not say that man is also subjected to those things. Let me explain. Man was placed as a steward on the earth. A steward over the earth and a steward over the animals. Imagine Adam as a purposeful steward, made in the image of God, looking for his horse so that he could get to the other side of the garden, but it turns out his horse had been attacked by some other creature and was now blinded. Would not Adam then be subject to the futility under which animals were suffering? Because he too is frustrated and impeded by the corruption in the world. 
he cannot act as well as a steward because his animal is affected by futility and suffering. Death has already cursed his work, even though he himself is not subject to death, or is not, he is not able to die. He is still subject to death. Or imagine Eve, as a relational being made in the image of God, comes to love a particular animal, say a cat, treats it like a pet, a friend, but then looks for it one day and discovers the cat's bloody carcass being picked apart by some hyenas. Even though she is not subject to death, would she not be under death's dominion as it provokes her to grief and anger? Imagine Adam and Eve trying to care for sick and cancerous animals. Maybe they work so hard to help this one animal who's suffering from a disease, and then another animal comes along and eats it. Imagine countless animal, er, countless animal kinds extinct before Adam and Eve can even get to know them, to name them, or to see them, or to become stewards over them. Would that not be a frustration of their stewardship? Would this not be an incredible and continual source of grief for the first two humans? And we can't say, oh, they weren't made fallen, so it wouldn't have bothered them. They would have just said, oh, you know, another animal dead. Oh, well, I guess that was part of God's sovereign plan. Remember, humans are made in the image of God. God often expresses anger, sadness, and even care for animals. Just because they, were, they weren't fallen doesn't mean that they wouldn't become sad or they wouldn't understand what frustration was. And aren't these imagined frustrations that I mentioned some of the same frustrations that the original audience in Genesis would have known? They were carers for animals. Later in Exodus, specifically, the Israelites complained about how, the, how all their livestock are going to die because of lack of provision. Moses, why did you bring us out here to the desert to kill our children and our livestock? Man has always been concerned over his animals. It's natural. He's a steward of creation. And he has to exercise particular concern over them. Why? Because of death. Man becomes very anxious about his animals because his animals die. They get sick. They get attacked. Man has always cared for animals, and it's not even just because of their utility. Listen to Proverbs 12.10, which says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. That proverb is all about contrast. A righteous man is so compassionate, he's even compassionate toward animals. Not wanting them to be burdened, not wanting them to suffer, not wanting them to be depressed. In contrast, the wicked person's compassion is actually cruel itself. Even his kindness is just another form of cruelty. So if this proverb is true about the righteous caring for animals, and this is after the fall, how much more so before the fall? Would not Adam and Eve have cared greatly for their animals? and been frustrated and grieved if their animals were suffering and under futility. Therefore, I suggest that those who say only animals suffered disease, predation, death, and futility before the fall, they offer an impossibility. Because man is given charge over animals and naturally cares for animals. Animals subjected to death, to death and vanity necessarily also means man is subjected to death and vanity in some measure. And that's not good. That is not good. That is not very good. And it places man under a curse and then somehow says that he's, he gets under the curse later. When the Israelites heard God pronounce his creation to be very good, they must have understood that phrase to be intrinsically good. It could not have included animal death. Otherwise, they would have understandably not agreed with God that his creation was very good. They knew the frustration of caring for sick and dying animals. Three more thoughts. Peace among the animals, as was mentioned a little bit earlier in the class, is part of a beautiful promise that God makes about the future of the earth. Let's now look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. God says... The violence that we see among the animal kind will not be part of the future. Not part of his good future. In context, this passage is describing the, what the world will be like when the righteous shoot from the line of Jesse, that is Jesus Christ, comes to reign. Verse 6. 
and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Before I comment, I'll also say, I'll refer to Isaiah 65, 25, which says something very similar. This is the very last part of the book of Isaiah. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That commentary from God is very valuable. He says there will be no more evil or harm or destroying in my new kingdom, not even among the animals. Why tell us that? Well, it's to make us look forward to it, right? A, we see that as very good. We see that as something blessed. If that's what God considers good in his millennial kingdom, would he have called mass extinctions, frustrated animal stewardship, very good in the Garden of Eden? Is that the way the Israelites would have understood it? I'll skip over the, the next set of verses. I think you know what I'm talking about. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, describe the new heavens and the new earth. And they say there will no longer be any death, nor will there be any mourning, any crying, any pain, because those things have passed away. Not just for humans. Nowhere in the creation will those things exist. Why? Because this creation is going to be totally good, totally perfect. If that's what we have to look forward to, then why would God originally included those in creation and pronounce them very good? I do want to offer you some poignant words from Dr. Terry Mortensen. He has a good article called, Death is Not Good. And he gives a little bit of commentary on Romans 8. And he says this. This is the verses we read earlier about the corruption and the futility that creation was subjected to. Scripture depicts this corruption in Romans 8 as a bad thing, an imposition on the proper order of things. Yet those who believe that life has been around for millions of, hundreds of millions of years must believe what the evolutionists claim, namely, that five major mass extinction events preceded mankind's arrival on the planet. At each of those times, they say, 65 to 90% of all species on Earth were extinct. If this is true, what impact did the fall have on creation? None. In fact, if death, if death, disease, and extinction really did occur for millions of years, then the very good creation of Genesis 1 was considerably worse than the world we now inhabit. The curse should actually be viewed as a blessing, since the earth has not seen 65 to 90% of all species go extinct since Adam sinned. In this scenario, the post-fall world is more creature-friendly than the very good pre-fall world. I think that's, that's pretty powerful. So let's sum it all up. Why should we totally reject the idea of death before the fall? Well, what we find in the fossil record, interpreted in the light of Genesis 1, shows that it's just not possible. It's not consistent for death, predation, disease, and thorns to be part of God's pre-fall world. Moreover, carnivorous behavior contradicts the vegetarian animal diet prescribed for pre-fall animals in Genesis 1. Plant death did not constitute true loss of life. Carnivorous names in the Hebrew had no relation to Adam's original name, or had no necessary relation. Adam did not need to witness death to know what it was. Animals, as part of man's dominion, were rightly subjected to the curse, according to Romans 5.12 and Romans 8.18-23. God was still able to create and drastically alter the world, even though he had finished the work of the creation week. Man's stewardship of creation is tied to the well-being of the earth and its animals, and any death or futility in the world would have also been a curse on mankind, and inconsistent with God's future plans for the earth and all its creatures. There are many reasons why we should reject the idea of death before the fall. But what is this really all about? I think you know. It's about authority. It's just as I've been saying the last two quarters with you. The real reason people say there's death before the fall isn't because the Bible says there is, but the Bible could 
indicate that there is. It's because they have an authority of truth they believe is superior to the Bible or as good as the Bible. And so therefore they read those things into the Bible. Will Christians, will we, will we start at the word of God and use it to assess the things of the world? Or will we use the world and its ideas to assess and reinterpret when necessary what the Bible says? That's it for today's class, but we do have our memory verse. Hopefully you've memorized Genesis 2, 15 to 17. This was the last week for it. If you know it, say it with me if you can. So we'll start with the reference and then say the verse. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you shall freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are good. And Lord, what sweet, sweet things we have to look forward to in being away from this world subjected to corruption and futility. Oh Lord, indeed the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. Even creation knows that. Oh Lord, make us bold with this truth so that we might bring more sons and daughters into the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.